Hello, and welcome to the Inequality Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Durloff, the director of the Stone Center for Research on Wealth, Inequality, and Mobility. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to another episode of the Inequality Podcast. I'm Jeff Woodkey, one of the associate directors of the Stone Center and a co-host for the podcast. I'll be talking today with Stephen and our guest, Professor Mike Esposito, who studies population health and racial inequality. In this episode, we focus on one of the most critical and distressing issues in the United States today, racial health disparities. Our conversation begins with a discussion of some sobering statistics that underscore the profound health disparities facing Black compared to white and other Americans. We explore some of the root causes of these inequalities, including how historical practices like redlining continue to have a lingering impact on health outcomes in minority communities today. We then turn our attention to more contemporary challenges, where we'll dive into the role of modern policing practices as an important social determinant of health. In particular, we examine how policing practices may adversely impact racial disparities and mortality, with a special focus on how these issues disproportionately affect young Black men. Our discussion will shed light on the grim reality that police-involved deaths are among the leading causes of mortality for this subpopulation of Americans. At different points throughout our discussion, we'll consider the potential effectiveness of policies such as national health insurance for reducing racial health disparities. And we'll talk about regional variation and the risk of police-involved deaths and what can be learned from this that might help to improve the situation. What policing practices might be used to create both safe and healthy communities where young black men are less at risk of negative interactions with law enforcement? This is an essential conversation that addresses both the long history and present day realities contributing to racial health disparities in America. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we're joined by Professor Mike Esposito. Mike is currently an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Minnesota, having recently departed a position at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, Before that, he was a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Michigan, and he earned his PhD from the University of Washington uh, in Seattle, studying sociology, statistics, and demography. His research focuses on racial disparities in population health, and more specifically, he investigates how institutions like policing and the criminal justice system contribute to unequal health outcomes for different racial groups. So uh, welcome, Mike. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us and for taking some time to share your insights into such critically important social problems. Yeah, thanks for having me. And it's also, it's just wild to hear kind of like that history be laid out. I feel like we're traveling kind of like circus people, just like bouncing around from city to city, kind of selling our wares. So it's weird to see that journey kind of laid out, but thanks for the kind introduction. Yeah, well, it's uh, quite the journey and uh, very exciting. So I thought I'd kick things off today by 
uh, leading with some basic facts to set the stage for our discussion. So adjusting for age, uh, black Americans have the highest mortality rate from heart disease, where they're about 20% more likely to die from this condition than white Americans. They also have the highest mortality rate for all cancers combined compared with any other racial and ethnic group. And there are about 11 infant deaths per 1,000 live births among Black Americans. This is almost twice the national average of about six infant deaths per 100,000 births. And overall, life expectancy is roughly 10 years shorter among Black compared to white Americans. So the U.S. is a very unequal country on many different dimensions, but these differences in life and death have to be among the most disturbing and uh, reprehensible inequalities there are. And so I realize this is a pretty big, broad question, but I wonder if you can begin by saying a little bit about the key factors that are driving these disparities in health outcomes. You know, what's responsible for these inequalities? For sure. Yeah, exactly. Well, I hope that you're okay with an equally big and kind of like a sprawling kind of answer on this, right? I guess like I'm of two minds on kind of like how exactly to answer this question about key kind of factors in uh, these really horrible disparities that we see, right? On the one hand, I totally think you could answer this question by pointing to very, very kind of particular concrete structures, events, and institutions as these key driving factors, right? So like, does the fact that kind of Black, Brown, and working class communities are consistently, disproportionately loaded up with things like air pollution have some uh, kind of bearing on uh, like kind of like the childhood outcome, health outcomes of those populations? 100%, I'd probably say so. And do things like the over-policing of those same neighborhoods uh, kind of like also add on these kind of extra stressors that burden health and well-being? Again, yep, I think this is a concrete kind of discrete force that likely plays a role in underlying all some of those disparities that you just talked about, right? But kind of on the other hand, and this is way more, this is why people don't like sociologists, right? Also answer this key. <laughs> what do you think they think of economists? But keep going. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, no one is well liked on this call. Um, but you know, on the other hand, I think you might also answer this type of key force question with racism, right? And what I mean by that is, you know, we see kind of across all these seemingly unrelated institutions, like those kind of organizations that distribute policing strategies and those that kind of like distribute air pollution across neighborhoods, that harms typically and privileges end up um, typically getting kind of arranged in the same way, uh, where black, brown, working class populations end up with kind of the harm side of things, and the privileges end up getting pushed up to populations that already sit with a lot of advantages. And what's more is you kind of see this pattern kind of recreate itself over time, over and over again, which I think is kind of stunning. Think about some of the tech that we've seen and develop in the past few years, some of that stuff about facial recognition stuff, right? Despite only being around for a couple of years, we're already seeing big disparities kind of like emerge in that sort of kind of social exposure. 
Or you think about kind of like on the health outcome side, thinking about things like COVID, right? Overnight, seemingly, um, there was this brand new disease that hit. We barely had an understanding of what the causes were, um, what the risks were. And just like almost instantaneously, instantaneously, you see these same kind of uh, racialized disparities kind of emerge in this brand new disease. So sure, right, harm is mediated out on kind of to real populations through specific and real institutions and structures at specific times. But really at this fundamental level, I think it's that persistent racialized logic that kind of is behind and motivates these different institutions in the first place. That's really kind of what's key to inequality here. So you mentioned air pollution. We're speaking to you on a day where here in Chicago, you can barely see 100 meters down the road because the smoke from the wildfires in Canada is just so, so dense here. Uh, and there are particulate matter warnings all over the news. Exactly. Well, stay inside on that, right? And it's, yeah, it's like those sorts of things. It's funny when you think about places like Chicago, I think people think that those sorts of environmental exposures kind of exist like outside of major kind of metro areas, but they're real there, like heat islands, right? Overexposure to heat, like among certain communities, air pollution stuff, I'm sure by some invisible mechanism that was set up years ago that the people that are kind of bearing the brunt of that kind of air particulate matter is somehow being unequally distributed kind of across communities, right? So we can do things to kind of be like, let's deal with this one kind of like particular kind of like institution exposure that's driving um, uh, health inequality right now, but without dealing with kind of like, you know, again, that racialized logic that made that kind of possible in the first place, we're probably going to end right back up there with some new kind of environmental uh, exposure or new kind of institution kind of down the line. Yeah. So you mentioned a lot of different things that we might group under this umbrella term called the social determinants of health. And so one of the things I wanted to talk about is how far back in time we can trace some of these social determinants. You've done some really interesting work about how discriminatory practices and institutions from the past continue to shape uh, the health disparities that we observe in contemporary society. Uh, for example, redlining might be one such historical practice with lingering effects on health disparities today. So redlining refers to a discriminatory practice that the homeowner's loan corporation or HOLC uh, started to engage in during the 1930s in many American cities. With redlining, the HOLC systematically categorized neighborhoods based on their racial composition, marking certain areas as high risk for mortgage lending. Uh, this practice targeted predominantly black neighborhoods and other minority communities, you know, regardless of their actual creditworthiness and effectively denied them access to mortgages. The HOLC's maps of credit risk used color-coded zones with red indicating the highest risk areas, hence the term redlining. So I'm wondering if you can maybe tell us a little bit more about how past institutions and practices like redlining might still influence population health today. 
For sure. Yeah. And I think that redlining is a good example of kind of some of the stuff I was just talking about um, before, right? In the short term, obviously, that um, has created some kind of inequality that kind of lied along the lines of race and class, where white professional class communities that got these A grades got to enjoy all sorts of like a boosted uh, uh, access to home ownership. And um, kind of black, brown, working class communities got the opposite end of that and got a lot of disinvestment and a lot of harm. And then folks have recently been like, well, okay, let's take a look and see if uh, those kind of harms kind of like kind of multiplied over time, if they stuck over time, that initial investment into kind of white spaces ended up cascading into differences in social and financial outcomes among those communities today. What people are finding is systematically like, yeah, that's that's kind of the case. Um, these neighborhoods that did that weren't redlined that received these favorable grades um, end up doing kind of like much better on all these different kind of markers, uh, including health, um, uh, compared to kind of neighborhoods that were kind of poorly redlined way back in the day, right? What are some of the health outcomes that you've linked redlining to specifically? Yeah, so I've only done life expectancy just because it's widely available and kind of like easy to measure. Um, but like hypertension, depression, asthma, exposure, just literally um, any health outcome that you can think of right now. There's somebody out there that's probably kind of like taken a kind of like a neighborhood in the past, taken a neighborhood today, looked at that neighborhood's like redlining grade and then traced out kind of the health outcomes of people that lived in that type of kind of like uh, neighborhood, um, what their health outcomes look like today. And you see that people that were in these places that were formerly redlined have like worse health on all these different indicators that you can imagine, right? So definitely an important kind of part of the story. On the other hand though, right, I do think it's very important to again, remember that the key cause, even in looking at these historical things, isn't necessarily one discrete act or institution, like the redlining of a specific neighborhood by the homeowners loan corporation, but rather it was that broader racialized logic that motivated folks like in the government at the time to say, hey, we should redline communities and we should do that with race in mind in the first place, that's the real cause. And so I think a good way to illustrate this is like, if you look at 70% of the most segregate, hyper-segregated Black working class neighborhoods today, you'll see that actually um, 70% of them were never formally redlined by the state way back in the day by Hulk. And still these places that, you know, didn't face this one kind of particular, very negative historical experience still have come to face all sorts of the same place-based conditions that drive poor health, and then also those kind of like poor health outcomes as those communities that were kind of redlined. So can I follow that up? Mm -hmm. Because it seems to me you brought up an important dimension of what we mean by what one ought to mean by systemic racism. So let me play this out. And I should say this is uh, partly self-serving because it involves work I'm doing with David McMillan at Emory. Suppose you took a group of neighborhoods, all of which were redlined, and we made the observation that you have persistent health inequalities uh, in some, but in other cases you do not. 
Systemic discrimination racism is not simply the uh, HOLC in isolation. It's the absence of rectification. In other words, what you observe is a signal event in terms of, the, of a, a path dependent deep roots to contemporary inequalities. But there's a history there in which you do not have the society recognizing the event happened and asking what sort of policies ought to be placed in, uh, in operation in response to that. So it seems to me that the, the temporal perspective you're taking also gives a temporal definition of what systemic racism is. It's not just these historically uh, powerful events, it's the absence of rectification. And so going down that route, it strikes me as interesting to think about the cases where you can identify redlined communities that in fact the disparities dissipated and then ask what policies, what, why was it that you had that? And by implication, the absence of the things in the other policies, that's the system. Mm-hmm. Eggs, uh, 100,000%, right? I think that there's like broader conversations about, you know, structural racism or all kind of feeling around what exactly we mean by that, right? My take on it is that kind of like the uh, working assumption, it should be that there's like structural racism everywhere. It's not this thing where it's like, this is a discrete exposure that's higher or lower in some places than others that we can kind of have some latent factor, but rather it's just like kind of like a property of the United States, a property of uh, kind of like our country. And so then the question starts to become like, well, how did places that did kind of like experience kind of like acts of like a big kind of institutional acts of structural racism actually break out of those kind of like long run chains of like what we would expect the default to be for a place that experienced that harm, right? And so figuring out things like, I think redlining would be a good case. It's like, well, what did happen in places, places that were redlined, but despite what kind of like we may expect given kind of these arrangements uh, between institutions that get set up and are formed by kind of discrete exposures, uh, institutional exposures like redlining. How did it overcome that system? How did it break those change of parts? Like those are the sorts of questions that I think are super kind of like important to answer. If I ask the question about the absence of national health insurance in the United States, does is, we think of that as racialized? And I think the answer I want to give is partially yes, simply because we know that there's unjust origins to health disparities, that the absence of the health insurance fails to rectify. And that's part of what I at least wanted to put on the table as a as a way to think about some of the mechanisms you've been studying. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, I think this is spot on. But here's another question. Even if there were generous national health insurance, what size dent do we think that would put in some of the racial disparities we've been discussing in the U.S.? Yeah. And I, that's uh, it gets back to this kind of point where I mean, it's like we can't be too kind of narrow in on discrete exposures and we have to kind of go all the way upstream to kind of like this kind of fundamental racialized logic. Because I think about the example of um, there's at one point, I think it was like 70s or 80s, and uh, there was a leading cause of death. I can't remember exactly what it was. A leading cause of death like among infants was, I think it was a respiratory disease, right? And so like people, you know, good doctors, good scientists had were like working really, really hard to kind of develop uh, some new kind of like medical into biomedical intervention to um, kind of correct that. It's like, oh, there's too many kids died and too many babies died. We have to do something about it. Noble goal. Um, I don't think anybody here would argue against that. Did it develop this drug um, that was super, super effective uh, kind of in treating kind of that, preventing that form of illness, distributed it to the market and 
when that happened, racial disparities like skyrocketed in infant death, right? Like overall kind of trends went down, but like kind of like disparities kind of went up uh, because it's we tried to layer a, uh, you know, a very effective solution on a deeply unequal structure already. And so, yeah, it just ended up exasperating kind of like health inequality. So when I think about stuff like that, like it's like, okay, well, if we went in and just pulled at this one string with like of, um, you know, correcting healthcare without dealing with the rest of it, you know, the system's so complicated, the relationship between these things are so complicated um, and reinforcing of the status quo that I don't know exactly where it would end up, right? I would like to think that kind of like something so big as like kind of like uh, uh, this sort of intervention on healthcare would probably help a lot of people, but it's just hard to tell, right? And I think that is, again, the key of structural racism. It's just a big nest of interlocking kind of complexity um, where if you intervene at one, who knows what's going to happen? Yeah. Another of the social determinants of health disparities that you've studied involves uh, law enforcement and specifically the role of policing. So. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your work on how policing practices are linked with health inequalities, how adverse interactions with law enforcement might influence both mental and physical health, and which populations are most vulnerable to these health risks. So policing is like an important participant in kind of like producing just both population health outcomes on the whole, but also disparities therein. And so my work is just like, uh, takes like very one, very narrow kind of like mechanism for making that happen. Um, And that's by kind of like how, you know, law enforcement institutions dole out physical harm in unequal ways kind of across the US population. You know, some of the work that I've done has showed that U.S. civilians face a globally exceptional risk of being killed by law enforcement compared to many other similar countries. I think the last time I looked, which was admittedly a while ago, like in the United States, 33 people per 10 million were killed by law enforcement each year in America compared to 10 per 10 million in Canada 1.3 per 10 million in Germany and just almost zero in Japan, Iceland and Norway, almost a completely preventable cause of death. That seems to be, um, you know, very, very high in the United States. I think it was the Guardian back in 2015. They had a, a stat that I think brings it home. England and Wales killed fewer of their own citizens in the past 24 years compared to um, what the United States did in the first 24 days of kind of like 2015, right? So really kind of like exaggerated um, kind of differences. And some of the work that I did filled in, uh, that I did with Frank Edwards and Hetty Lee, kind of filled in some of the kind of disparities kind of therein. Uh, For instance, we showed that kind of the lifetime risk of being killed by police in the United States is about 2.5 times higher among black men and boys compared to kind of white men and boys. One of every 1,000 black males born in the U.S. can be expected killed by law enforcement compared to one of every 2.5K kind of white males. And so, you know, overall, that alone kind of like puts um, kind of law enforcement practices in the mix as this institution that is key to, you know, shape and health outcomes in the U.S., but then also in driving health inequality between groups. I think one of the most startling and unsettling facts that you mention in one of your papers on this topic is that, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, 
uh, I think it's among young black men, so adolescence and early adulthood. Uh, Police-involved deaths are among the top causes of mortality in that particular population. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, it's a little top six. I think it's behind suicide, homicides from other civilians. I forget what the other the other ones were, but it's in, I think it's five or six, like among kind of young black men. Yeah. So not a trivial source of mortality at all among certain populations. Yeah, not at all. Right. And I think this is, it's, it's a massive uh, kind of like unequally distributed form of premature harm. And I would hope that that would be enough to kind of motivate kind of like anybody to like care about it, right? Let's like, it doesn't matter who it's happening to. Um, This is a massive kind of participant mechanism towards premature death in the United States, kind of like just broadly. In a different paper that we did, we showed that I think it was about eight to 10% of all homicides with adult male victims uh, in the United States over, you know, um, some period in the the past that we were examining were due to police, right? That's 10%. We could reduce mortality, uh, kind of like premature mortality rates in the U.S., um, take 10 percentage points off of that by just intervening on kind of like uh, deaths that are kind of produced through the state in this kind of like regard, right? So like a massive, massive participant. This also strikes me as a good, another context for your ideas of systems matter. I'm thinking of Selwyn Rogers, a professor at the medical school here, who has studied the distribution of trauma centers in Chicago and shown that their constant, their locations relative to acts of violence are very poorly matched. And so if black communities don't have trauma centers for discriminatory reasons that are independent of the police actions, it interacts with them to create much higher death rates. And so I think that your emphasis on the complexities and the interactions, you know, again, uh, comes into play here. Exactly. Yeah. Cause that's just, it interacts with all of these other kind of like systems too, um, to kind of like just amplify kind of like inequalities kind of across the board. Right. So I think it's also kind of like good to, you know, that's one very, like the, the, the death physical harm stuff is one very direct mechanism, but you know, there's lots of other kind of folks doing, um, uh, showing that it doesn't stop there. Right. Uh, so for instance, there's like all sorts of compelling out there from the works of like Ali Sewell, Amanda Geller, Syria Long, Courtney Bowen, uh, my new colleagues at Minnesota, Juan Del Toro, Rachel Hardiman, and many others uh, showing off kind of like how police encounters that seem relatively non-violent and very short-lived, especially things like these stop and frisk kind of pedestrian encounters, especially when those encounters are deemed to be really unfair and discriminatory can produce this long-lasting anxiety, emotional distress, uh, psychological strain, uh, depression, you know, which are negative health outcomes in and of themselves, but can also kind of snowball into other forms of negative health, you know, anticipation of negative encounters. Yeah, it's it's a big, big web of exposures. So you've mentioned how the risk of police-involved death varies widely across countries. Um, And in several of your papers, you've also documented how even within the U.S., it varies pretty widely across regions. So clearly, there are some places that are doing a more effective job at policing than others, you know, policing in a way that's not a major cause of population mortality for certain groups. So I'm wondering if there's anything we can learn from that spatial variation in the 
risk of police-involved death about how to improve the situation. Are there particular initiatives or reforms in policing that have improved health outcomes in certain local communities? What can we learn from this in terms of remedying the problem? Mm-hmm, totally, yeah. I think about the Oakland ceasefire initiative, right? The big idea was that community members around Oakland and kind of police kind of teamed up and was like, hey, this isn't working. The way that we've been doing police in here, nobody's happy. It's not actually leading to a reduction in crime. It's causing all these kind of like uh, abstracted and uh, kind of um, external kind of forms of kind of harm. What can we do about that? Let's let's think about a different way about promoting public safety, if you want to frame it like that. And so what they essentially did was say, okay, hey, cops, how about there's like five or six people that are kind of like really driving a lot of violent crime in the community. Can you just go and like talk to them and intervene with those particular people instead of this like this scattershot policing where it's like, we're going to like militarize the police. We're going to throw a police on the ground. If you see any sort of kind of like um, deviant behavior, rush in there and kind of break it up, question people because that deviant behavior could grow. Let's stop that because it's not actually preventing any crime and it's causing a lot of this kind of like emotional distress for people. They did it. And the last time I looked, right, they were doing surveys of people in the kind of the areas where um, that policing strategy was rolled out. And everyone was like, oh, yeah, ooh, this is great. This is fantastic. Right. Like because I mean, this is the, this is a tough thing about um, uh, a lot of these exposures, too, is that kind of like black working class populations bear kind of like not only disproportionate kind of like policing harms, but also other forms of interpersonal violence. Right. And so it's like, well, I would like somebody to do something about that. Right. But I don't want to be criminalized for just existing kind of like in the world. And this kind of like struck a balance between it's like, well, okay, we can deal with violence, crime, and then not treat you like, uh, you know, not treat you unfairly, not have the state come in and just like be very aggressive and violent uh, kind of towards you. Things like that are a pathway towards a sort of uh, uh, interventions that are needed. I think even more extreme ones would be useful. Like one thing I forgot to bring up earlier was in thinking about like the harms of policing and the systems thinking. I remember uh, Mother Jones kind of piece from a while ago where they actually looked at the percentage of city budgets that go to policing, uh, supporting big policing infrastructure. And it was like 20 to 40%. And, you know, that's money that could probably be spent to kind of democratize kind of like healthcare, education, all this other kind of stuff that like is very kind of good for community health that's getting eaten up by these kind of like, you know, control mechanisms, right? Hey, maybe we loosen this, kind of shrink it, redistribute the kind of like efforts elsewhere while maintaining public safety can be good there too. So I think just stuff like that, that just like, says, okay, we've been doing this wrong. Um, let's rethink how we do uh, kind of like uh, social control here is all very necessary to correct this. Thank you so much, Mike, for taking the time to speak with us about racial health disparities and their ideology and both historical discrimination as well as more contemporary challenges like ineffective policing practices. These are really critical problems and I'm very happy that folks like yourself are working on evidence-based solutions. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sorry I was rambling at you too much, but this is this is fun. No, not at all. Yeah. It was a wonderful <laughs> conversation. Thank you. 
people to come and listen when I'm at home. And uh, today, the streets have been just crowded. This is Mahalia Jackson, one of the most famous gospel singers from the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. And that chuckle you heard came from Edward R. Murrow. The year is 1958, and he's interviewing Mahalia for his show, Person to Person, a kind of unique and intimate format where Edward Murrow, sitting in the studio and smoking his famous camel cigarettes, would interview his guests in their own homes. Earlier guests included such luminaries as Marilyn Monroe, Leonard Bernstein, JFK, and Marlon Brando. But today the guest is Mahalia who's sitting in her home in Chicago's Southside Chatham neighborhood. She fields questions in her living room, then moves over to the dining room, and even stops at a small den that tonight is filled with the neighborhood children, all dressed in their Sunday best. After taking a seat near the piano, Mahalia proceeds to serenade Mr. Murrow and the children. This interview was occurring just as the racial divisions in Chicago were solidifying, a decades-long process that would eventually result in one of the most segregated cities in the country. Mahalia Jackson cuts an interesting figure against this backdrop, an incredibly famous and accomplished artist whose career spanned more than 40 years. She sold over 22 million records and was a hit among audiences both black and white. Yet she was still victim to the same kind of discrimination that plagued other black residents of the city. Despite fame and fortune, she could not rise above the forces that were dividing the city just as she was settling down in it. The Chatham neighborhood was 1% black in 1950, but by 1960 the black population was at 64%, a complete racial shift. Now, what led to this drastic change? In order to address this question, we'll need to go back a little further in time. Seventeen years earlier, in 1939, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, or Hulk, was completing its city survey project for Chicago. Agents for Hulk divided the city and its nearest suburbs into almost 600 sections and assessed the mortgage security of each area, or essentially, the likelihood that those residents would default on their mortgages. The safest areas received a grade of A and were coated with the color green. B areas? coded as blue, were defined as being still desirable. C areas were deemed definitely declining and were coded in yellow, and that leaves us with D, the hazardous areas, and those were colored in red, hence the term redlining. Hulk agents looked at a number of factors when assessing the quality of these areas, but the one I want to focus on were the population characteristics. Surveyors commented on changes in population size as well as the class and occupation of most of the residents. But they also looked at prejudice-laden criteria, such as the percentage of foreign families, the nationalities of the residents, the percentage of black residents, and to what extent there was a population shift or infiltration, and that's the actual word they used, infiltration. If you actually look at a 1939 Hulk map of Chicago, the first thing that jumps out is the absolute pessimism that these agents had about the future of the city. You can spend a lot of time trying to find the green areas, which make up only 6% of the city and its suburbs, and as a matter of fact, most of the green areas were actually in the suburbs. 
In all, just 29% of the city was considered desirable enough for investment, while 71% was deemed to either be definitely declining or hazardous. When you look at the racial breakdown of these areas, you might also be surprised to see how many of them had no reported black populations. In fact, 95% of all designations reported 0%, or agents simply left the spot blank. Recall though that Chatham was only 1% black in 1950, more than 10 years after these surveys had been conducted. In 1940, black Chicagoans made up just over 8% of the total population in the city. It wouldn't be until the second great migration of 1940 to 1960 that the black population would almost triple to 813,000, comprising almost a quarter of the total population. As it turned out, only 30 of those 600 areas reported any black populations in 1940. Sadly, but not surprisingly, only one black family lived in an area that was deemed desirable for investment. The remaining 29 areas would all end up being designated either yellow or red areas, in large part because of the presence of those black families. Hulk agents were certainly discriminatory towards black Americans, but they also extended that discrimination to a much wider demographic. In addition to mentions of influxes of black residents, Many yellow and red areas were reportedly also quote-unquote suffering from influxes of Italian, Jewish, Polish, and Greek populations. One area was even deemed to be having an influx of quote-unquote the worst elements of society. My own hometown, a tiny suburb on the western border of Chicago, earned a D rating and the main reason appears to be the fact that 90% of the population was foreign-born and made up of Bohemians, Croatians, and Polish. In the description, the agent even writes that the area is a sparsely built-up village characterized by a low-grade population, hoodlums, vandalism, and goats. But that suburb would turn out to be an exception rather than the rule on how these agents graded the suburbs. In essence, they idealized them. Unlike old, dilapidated Chicago, these areas were younger and full of newly developed homes. And perhaps just as importantly, their residents tended to be more homogeneously white and more likely to be born in this country. This included some of the suburbs that are today among the wealthiest in the state, including Winnetka, Evanston, Kenilworth, and Glencoe. Now this is where things get a little confusing, because in 1938, the year before those Hulk maps were completed, a separate federal agency, the Federal Housing Administration, created their own map of the city. A side-by-side -side comparison reveals a lot of similarities, chief among them the fact that racial and economic composition played a large factor in their analysis. And this is because the Hulk used the same guidelines for their designations that the FHA had first developed. The biggest difference, though, is that the FHA maps appear to have been way more prescriptive. While the Hulk maps don't explicitly define mortgage restrictions, the FHA maps clearly demarcate the kind of mortgage insurance the agency would provide. In C districts, for example, they only offer insurance for mortgages of 10 years or less. It also says, and I quote, the FHA will not insure mortgages in any Class D districts. Let's leave the maps now and focus our attention on realtors. In addition to relying on each other's guidelines, the Hulk and the FHA both consulted real estate agents in assessing Chicago's neighborhoods. And this allowed these agents to codify their discriminatory housing practices. Some of these practices were driven from the top down. All realty boards, for example, that were registered with the National Association of Real Estate Boards outright prevented their brokers from showing properties to non-white residents. 
The practice was so blatant and widespread that it effectively pushed these black residents into those red areas, the poorest spots of the city deemed to have the least chance of improvement. Things got so bad that in 1966, Martin Luther King, along with his family, moved into a blighted apartment in the Lawndale neighborhood on the city's west side. Here's how he described real estate practices in the city. We sent Negroes in large numbers to the real, the real estate offices in Gage Park. Every time Negroes went in, the real estate agent said, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have anything listed. Now you can find something somewhere else, and it was always back in the ghetto, but they didn't have anything. And then soon after that, we sent some of our fine white staff members into those same real estate offices, and the minute the white persons got in, they opened the book. Oh yes, well we have several things. Now what do, exactly do you want? And just to be clear, real estate agents weren't acting in a vacuum. Instead, they were acting as the guardians of a segregated ideology that was widespread in the city. Chicago's white population didn't take well to the idea of black residents living near them, and that's putting it mildly. Real estate agents capitalized on these racist sentiments, and the most well-known way to do this was through blockbusting, which served to accelerate white flight. If black residents started moving into neighborhoods, real estate agents might reach out to nearby white residents and warn them of an incoming wave of black families. They would stress how the neighborhood was inevitably going to change for the worse, and that property values would plummet. In desperation, these residents would agree to sell their homes to the agents for far less than they were worth. And those agents, in turn, would sell those homes to the incoming black families at grossly inflated prices. But most black families trying to buy homes, especially homes in red-lined areas, couldn't purchase a mortgage like white families could. Instead, they entered into what were called installment land contracts, a sort of rent-to-own agreement where a family, only after making all payments, could finally claim title to the home. But until then, the title remained with the agent, and the family gathered no equity whatsoever. ILCs also did not provide the same legal protections to renters in the same way that mortgages did. A missed payment, for instance, could be grounds for property seizure, as well as the forfeiture of any payments already made. ILCs played a huge role in creating the racial wealth gap. While white families accrued wealth through their homes in deliberately segregated neighborhoods, black families were denied this privilege through insurmountable legal, social, and financial barriers. But let's return now to Mahalia Jackson. She fell in love with the modest splendor of Chatham, but even she struggled to find someone willing to sell a home to her. It should have been easy. Unlike the vast majority of other residents trying to find homes, she was able to pay for that one entirely in cash. Yet no one appeared willing to sell to her in a neighborhood that was still majority white. It wasn't until she found a seller who also happened to be a fan of hers that she was finally able to settle down. But problems still remained. White neighbors harassed her, robbed her, shot at her window, and even threatened to bomb her house. Fortunately though, her fame cushioned the blow. She was able to call on then-Mayor Richard Daly, who granted her year-round police protection. These kinds of juxtapositions crop up a lot throughout Mahalia's life. She could perform for an attentive all-white crowd in Amsterdam one week, and then struggle to hail a cab on State Street in Chicago the next. She paid cash for a corner house in a nice Southside neighborhood, which, as it would turn out, would become one of the city's few truly middle-class black neighborhoods. And she was even granted an interview with the great Edward R. Murrow. Yet a bullet still pierced her window, 
a message perhaps that despite her fame, she still didn't belong, that she was still part of the hazardous crowd of people changing the racial makeup of Chatham in 1956. Chatham is a beautiful neighborhood, but even its most famous residents couldn't escape discrimination. What's more, surrounding it on all sides are other majority black neighborhoods that were dealt even worse hands. They were neighborhoods that former white residents had fled, neighborhoods that already lacked resources, neighborhoods that federal maps from the 1930s deemed essentially to be unworthy of any real investment. Those maps would also equate to undeniable economic injustices felt even today, where home values in white majority neighborhoods are appraised at rates three times higher than black majority neighborhoods and where black homeownership rates are just over half the rate of white homeownership. Moving throughout Chicago today, it's easy to forget about all that history and to take, as a matter of fact, or simply as a matter of preferences, the stubborn racial lines that divide the city. Redlining and the most discriminatory of real estate practices may be vestiges of the past, but their effects are very much felt today, and they form a fundamental truth about what it means to live in this city. The Inequality Podcast is a production of the Stone Center for Research on Wealth, Inequality, and Mobility at the University of Chicago. It is hosted by myself, Stephen Durloff, along with Damon Jones, Jeffrey Wadka, and Ariel Khalil. This episode was recorded, sound engineered, and produced by Eric Gepper with support from Gerardo Espinal Franco. Thanks as well to the Center's Executive Director, Grace Hammond, for all her support. Please consider liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast among your friends, and send any questions or feedback to ucstonecenter at gmail.com. That's all for now. Thanks for joining us. Oh, that was beautiful. Thank you so much.